Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Theory. Adam Harstead, Matt Waldman joining you once again this week. You can find Adam's work at footballguys.com. Does fantastic work. Of course, you can find him also on X, Twitter, Pluto, whatever you want to call it, at Adam Harstad. Um, Adam, to th- this week, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, you know quarterback development. He, you know, probably using Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud as examples, and also uh, culture building within organizations. Uh, so let's kick this off. So, what are your thoughts on you know setting this up for you know? when we're looking at quarterback development with some of these young players, what are some things that we need to know about that'll help us out? Yeah. Um, so I don't like from a development standpoint, I don't really know what goes into that other that then there is a process. Some teams are better at it than others, you know, and, and I think there's some fit there too, where a quarterback might develop well in one system and not as well in the other. I think there's some quarterbacks who probably the best thing is starting from day one, uh, and I think there's other quarterbacks who probably the best thing is getting some time to learn and process. And um, so for the actual development standpoint, I don't really know what goes into that. Um, it's kind of a black box to me. But from the outside looking in, my question is always, you know, is can I predict whether development is happening? Um, you know, can I look at this and... Um, this might be a controversial opinion, um, I would say that C.J. Stroud has been playing very well to start his career. Bryce Young has been <laughs> playing not as well. And in my perhaps out there opinion, I think it's generally not good for quarterbacks to play not well when they're young. Um, you know, I think it's a bad sign. Even if it's not especially surprising for quarterbacks to struggle as they transition to the NFL, um, the thing is, like, every bad quarterback has played badly. That's kind of what made them bad quarterbacks. So if a quarterback's playing badly, that should raise our expectations that, like, okay, I thought he was in this good quarterback group, but actually maybe he's in this bad quarterback group, and we should revise our opinions downward over time. Um, But somebody asked about Bryce Young specifically, you know, like, are there any examples of rookie quarterbacks starting this poorly and then turning it around? So... I always like to look at the historical numbers. I always like to look at the historical base rates. Um, And I checked, and Bryce Young is, uh, I think, 11th worst in terms of era-adjusted, adjusted net yards per attempt, which is a good compound efficiency stat for quarterbacks um, among all rookie quarterbacks with at least 200 attempts. And I, I would bet that that will probably rise over the course of the season as he gets a little bit more experience. I'm not saying he's gonna definitely finish 11th worst. Um, but of the bottom 25 quarterbacks in that stat, era-adjusted efficiency, um, I would say about six probably went on to become long-term cornerstone starters for their franchises. Not even, you know, like amazing Hall of Famers, although there are a couple Hall of Famers in that list, Troy Aikman, Terry Bradshaw, um, but like Jared Goff or better. Um, And Jared Goff was the worst in the sample in terms of, rookie efficiency it's not bad um yeah so six out of 25 that's if you're looking at base rates it's about a 24 25 percent hit rate typically i think for um, rookies coming in i expect about a 50 50 hit rate you know some of them are going to be good some of them are going to be bad someone like you can probably do better to sort that out in advance but i just kind of trust the nfl's evals on this sort of stuff sure um And so going from like a 50-50 hit rate down to like a 25% hit rate, that would be a big negative reduction. 
But the key thing to look at in the data is like, what are the six quarterbacks that turned it around? You have four guys who were number one overall draft picks, one guy who was a number two overall draft pick in Donovan McNabb, and one guy who was a number seven overall draft pick in Josh Allen. Um, you had another number one overall draft pick in Eli Manning, who would be on that list, except he only had 197 attempts, so he just missed the qualifying threshold. You had two more number one overall draft picks who um, weren't in the bottom 25, but they were in the bottom 30 in Trevor Lawrence and John Elway. Elway definitely turned it around. Lawrence looks like he's going to be at least on the Jared Goff track. So you can't just look at at the naive hit rate and say it's 24-25%. Yeah, for a later round guy, for a, a bottom half of the first round or early second round guy, maybe that's the case or maybe even worse. But for number one overall draft picks, actually, like most of the number one picks who were awful as rookies wound up being good quarterbacks. The one glaring exception at the bottom of the list is David Carr, um, which again gets into development and and there's a big debate about whether the Texans quote-unquote ruined um, Carr or not. Um, to be clear, this is David Carr, not Derek Carr. Um, but yeah, so so I think Bryce Young is an interesting one. I would, I would have expected before looking at the data that the comps of rookie quarterbacks who struggled as much as he struggled um, would have been much more negative than they were. And I don't know that I'm really revising my opinion down very much from where I had him coming into the season. Maybe if I thought it was 50%, he became a long-term starter before the year. Maybe I'm down to 40% now. Um, so I'd be really curious to get your thoughts on what you're seeing from Young. And um, I know you have your hypothesis on on like the, the quarterback development curve where you know, a guy starts and then teams get film on him and then they adapt and you don't really know anything about a quarterback until you're like 20 games in. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Sure. You know, and I think that I, I love the list and I think that it's wise, obviously, if you're, you know, to use this as a layer of information to understand how you should value him, because certainly you could look at, you know, a scouting report like I did on Young. He was my number three quarterback behind Richardson and Stroud. Um, and Richardson and Stroud were a little bit closer together than than Young was. Um, but I still had Young listed as a future starter. Um, but the information that you're providing, Adam, I think does a good job of being able to take something like what I'm doing and, and say, okay, I'm interested in Bryce Young as maybe a potential dented can and, and being able to buy into him while the market's low on him. What should I be giving up knowing what the risks are? Because the risks are that, it, you know, he's going to, you know, he's going to have to overcome some things to be able to generate the production that's that that I'm going to get the bargain to acquire him. Or should I stick with him? You know, if you have him and, and should I stick with him and not get another quarterback or should I keep buying into getting another rookie quarterback with another class coming? My recommendation is that you would do so. Um, you know, because this is a, a decent quarterback class coming up and you look at young situation, offensive line isn't good. Um, you know, you have the best wide receiver that they have is an aging veteran. Um, and they really don't have, you know, they really don't have a lot as a team. They have a lot of pieces that if they could get, if the offensive line can get better very quickly, um, Bryce Young will probably be have enough decent weapons 
to to provide you, you know, top 15 production, probably in that lower end of that spectrum. But without that offensive line, you know, he's really struggling. And when we take a look at a lot of the quarterbacks you mentioned on this list, I mean, the Eagles didn't have an offensive line. The the Rams certainly didn't there um, with the, their system. Neither did Elway. Neither did um, Trevor Lawrence. They also Lawrence and and Goff have in common. We talked about last week. Lawrence's awful, like historically awful, offensive scheme. Well, when Todd Gurley come goes on to national media at the end of the season under Jeff Fisher's offenses and says tells the national media we we have the equivalent of a high school offense um on this team that doesn't bode well um so you and then there's the adjustment factor of you know with some of these players lawrence you know lawrence has played in more of a, a spread offense with a lot of rpos um, you look at Goff, he played in an air raid offense and had to go to a, a pure West Coast offense, which is, you know, I've often talked about it's like learning Chinese um, and then having to go to China and have actual conversation, um, conversational um, types of interactions in, you know, with a lot of noise and a lot of music and and a lot of urgency of different things and People aren't treating you like you're a first-time speaker. Um, and I think that we saw a lot of that with golf. Um, so I think the problem, you know, a lot of things that I mentioned, I'm trying to draw some commonality, common threads. But the real answer is, is that at the end of the day, organizations don't really do a great job of developing quarterbacks. They, they either do a good job of fitting the quarterback within the, the scheme that he does best um, or the quarterback does a great job of developing on his own with outside help and and getting enough chances because he's an early round um, draft capital to fail. Um, there are some exceptions. Patrick Mahomes is a great example of a player who played in an air raid system who, you know, when I when I did a scouting report, that I recommended from Erhard Perkins' system more than a West Coast system because I thought it'd be a little easier for him to learn right away. But Mahomes was pretty, you know, straightforward. You can hear him talk about on his interviews now about why he wanted to play with the Chiefs and what his interactions were like with the Chiefs. And he said, listen, guys, I mean, I, you know, I don't read progressions at Texas Tech. That's not anything that I was ever asked to do. So I can learn, but it's going to take a little bit of time for that to happen. And the and you know the Chiefs were like, well, we've got Alex Smith. You can you can sit for almost a year. You can get a game in, and then get a whole off season to 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 continue to work on it and read and develop these reads. And you're going to do and and you know and he ended up working out well. But most teams don't say we're going to give you that time after we've traded up for you um, into the first round. So, you know, looking at Young's situation, I would, you certainly would downgrade him some, like you like you mentioned, you know, maybe 10%, you know, if you're going to quantify it. But at the same time, his draft capital, and then you look at the offensive line, they know they got to get better as an offensive line. They know they got to get a better receiver. And you also look at Young's play, He's the type of 
uh, we'll start with this. Those two things that they got to get better at, they're likely going to make the effort to do so and give him multiple chances to fail. So I would say the overall answer is continue to roll with Bryce Young and have some have some comp, still have enough confidence to acquire him. Just maybe hedge, you know, because if you're if young if you're building a dynasty team, then yeah keep getting another quarterback because if you end up with two really good quarterbacks, you can trade one. I mean, look, Sigmund, I have Anthony Richardson. I traded uh, first uh, 1.01 overall to Bloom this year for Anthony Richardson. Or, um, and or no, I traded up. That's what it is. I traded up to get 1.01 with Bloom to get Anthony Richardson. And, now Bloom needs a quarterback. He's actually offered me a first-round pick in 2025 and Max Crosby in a performance defensive uh, performance league to do that. And I'm probably a defensive end short from, uh, you know, I'm like, I've got a good team, but this might be the trade that I need to make to put my team in, in a win-now situation for it. And I still have Mahomes. You know, it's just whether I really want to give up um, Richardson, I think the smart answer is probably so. You know, we'll just—I just don't know if I'd I just, probably pass. Yeah, that's the uh, the only thing I hate about it is I feel like I have good enough defensive ends that the difference in in Max Crosby is that he's like I might get four good years out of him, whereas with Richardson I might get I'll probably get eight to ten. So I'd rather like I feel like I can piece together defensive ends. It's been like three days. I said I'd get back to you. It's been like three days and I haven't answered anything to him about it. So my enthusiasm hasn't been strong. But you yep. you, you get the point I'm making is that is that when you have multiple good players, or at least the perception of it, you have options, you know, and people present at least compelling enough options to go, that's in the realm of fair, you know, that's what I told myself. It's in the realm of fair. I'll get back to you, you know, and see. But uh but but yeah, I mean, you look at this from those angles and there's reason for optimism as long as you hedge a little bit and maybe take another rookie, um, take another shot at it. The, the, the downside of it is this, is that Young is, Young may have been drafted as a first round player, but when you look at the, the kind of the visual models of what first round players look like, he's not one of them. He's short, he's light. He's had to win by um, a combination of mobility and good but not great arm strength, um, which means that his game isn't like Josh Allen's. Josh Allen, you could take a guy like him and say, listen, you may look as dumb as rocks when you faced Nebraska at what, when you were at Wyoming, where I was watching him with somebody who wanted me to watch with him, and he said, this is the guy people are touting as a first-round pick? And I'm like, yeah, he goes, he's awful. How could anybody like, and I said, I don't know. I've got more games to watch, but it doesn't look good, you know? And he certainly broke the curve, but the, the bills also were like, listen, we're going to, we're going to figure out what we have. We're going to let you run out of shotgun and be a runner. And then gradually we're going to add pieces and figure out schematically what works best for you to minimize your, your, um, your flaws. And they did that. They learned how to like, like if he were in Arthur Smith's offense, he would have failed dramatically in my opinion, because a lot of the routes terminated like at one spot and he, he like Desmond Ritter, he would not have been able to 
to read the field well, but they actually move the um, receivers across the middle of the field a lot on different levels, which gives him multiple windows and allows him to maximize his skill of buying time. Um, so you look at a guy like Young, he doesn't have those physical skill sets though. So is he going to be able to calibrate his game that was so good at Alabama to make the timing throws and the and to to move around in the pocket and and be able to win that way? And I would say the answer is um, is less. There's a, a lower confidence level of that than there is for you know some of these guys with the big frames and the big arms. Um, so you know for me. The confidence level is still there, but that's why I'm I would look at the hedge here because the the offense the team is going to develop around him, and I think he'll work hard to work on his game. But the question is, and that's what he's going to have to do on his own. But the question is whether his game is going to match well enough for what the NFL expects, um, or how NFL the NFL plays quarterbacks. Um, whether or not he's going to be able to kind of calibrate his game. Because to me, like Johnny Manziel, Baker Mayfield, um, Bryce Young, Russell Wilson, they're all kind of in a similar mold of player, which is they buy time, but they're not unbelievably, they're not elite in their mobility in terms of like threats beyond the line of scrimmage. Um, so, you know, for me, it, they he's the guy that doesn't really fit in the other names that you mentioned, you, you know, as a player when you study them on tape. Um, but I but I do like what he did at Alabama well enough to think that he will be one of the few to be able to calibrate that, uh, you know, what his, and and figure out. All right, there's certain things I can't get away with with faster defenses. All right, there are certain things that I would try here, but defenses are too savvy. I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to do that on the move as well as I did at Alabama. Um, and I think that, you know, right now it's just covered up by the fact that there's too much pressure on him, um, you know, when he drops back in the pocket to be able to have an accurate gauge of what he can, of what he can and can't do and grow beyond. Yeah. And as an inside, I love, um, just stockpiling quarterbacks in one quarterback leagues in dynasty. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's hard to find a reasonable trade for them, but the window to get it done is just so long because they just, they just hold value for so well. And for so long, I have a one quarterback dynasty league um, that granted the scoring is a little bit more quarterback friendly. So it, it actually makes quarterbacks extremely valuable um, where Patrick Mahomes, like if we were redrafting would, maybe be my number one or number two or number three pick like up there with Jefferson and Chase. Um, but so I have Mahomes. Um, I traded Saquon Barkley a number of years ago for um, Austin Eckler and Dak Prescott. I had Deshaun Watson. And this year in the rookie draft, I drafted um, Bryce Young at the end of the first round and CJ Stroud um, at the beginning of the third round. Uh, which I thought was crazy. I and I said to people, I'm at the surprised time, he went that low. I know. I, I when he was falling, I didn't think he'd make it all the way there. And and someone wanted to trade for my. Um, I had a late second round pick, and I was on the clock, and somebody wanted to trade for it. And I'm like, okay, I will trade this to you, but I'm just going to let you know that like, I'm going to 
value this in the trade as like a higher second round pick because there's a guy on the board who I, I liked for like the past eight picks who's still there. Um, so it's going to look like a bad trade on paper for you because, you know, you're buying like the 2.09 and I'm valuing it like the 2.01. Um, but he was okay with that and we did that. And then he didn't take Stroud and Stroud fell to me at the 3.01, which I had also acquired in trade. Um, and so I have like five quarterbacks in that league. And I mean, unfortunately, I did trade Stroud before the season for what's looking like the presumptive 2.01 in next year's draft plus a plus a high third, uh, which was good value at the time. And, and, and I'm okay with it. That's good process, bad outcome. That's not going to kill me, especially because, you know, when you have Mahomes, it's, it's easy to say, well, yes, I could have gotten a lot more for him today, but it's not like I'm going to be hurting at the quarterback position without him. Um, but I love, yeah, I'll take I'll take Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud in the same draft. I I, I don't think they should have been as far apart as they were. Yeah. I had them close to a coin flip on on my board when I was taking my pick. Um, and one of the reasons I leaned Young was because I knew that he wouldn't fall, and I thought Stroud might, which he did. Uh, so yeah, I I love getting lots of quarterbacks in one quarterback league. Um, lots of good, promising young quarterbacks. I, I don't love like the Kirk Cousins types so much. Yeah. Um, they're great as your starter, but like they're not doing a whole lot for you on your bench because they they don't carry much in trade value, and it's not like they're going to spike up under any circumstances. Even when like Kirk was playing like an MVP candidate this year, and how high did his trade value get in non superflex leagues? Not very high. Um, so yeah, I love that advice that like maybe acquire young, but also be looking to take more shots. Um, in the rookie draft next year, and and yeah, just just always be rostering quarterbacks. Um, it's not as imperative for fantasy teams as it is for NFL teams, just because quarterback is obviously disproportionately valuable in the NFL. Uh, but I th I still think it's just a good practice to get into. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, like I had pre-draft, it was Richardson's Stroud and Young. Post-draft, I had Richardson as my number two overall player, Young as my number three overall player, and Stroud as my seventh. And they were all in my top tier. Like, mm -hmm. so my top tier, I mean, was basically Bijan, Richardson, Young, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Dalton Kincaid, Jameer Gibbs, um, Stroud, Flowers, Addison, Laporta, and Tajay Spears. Um, and then Quentin Johnston border, you know, basically at the end of the first tier. Um you know, so when I look at, you know, looking at it from that perspective, I had Stroud really compared as a Kirk Cousins type. And I'm still kind of in on that as the comp, even though people are unbelievably excited about him right now, because statistically what he's doing, it seems off the charts. Um, but, you know, would at the same time, I even think what quarterbacks were doing eight to 10 years ago was a different era of what we're seeing with quarterbacks now. So I'm still kind of like, I like what Stroud's doing. I love how he's playing. I'm still not convinced we've seen it. He's seen everything defensively um, that's going to potentially trip him up. I think there's still more to come as a possibility with his game. And I don't think it's going to trip him up to the point where you're not going to want him. But I think that, you know, just like with Brock Purdy, we may see it calmed down a little bit where his value is going to, you know, probably going to settle a bit. And so 
Whereas with Young, I think he has nowhere to go but up. Um, at this, it's either up or he's out. Of oh, the I was about to say he can go down. He can yeah, go I, down. I, yeah, I can definitely <laughs> but, give you examples gone down from here. Oh, we certainly have plenty of them, more than the exceptions that you brought up. But I like, but I think Young's skill as a, you know, an anticipation thrower, pocket presence, um, accuracy overall, I think have been very strong from what I've noted with quarterbacks in the past, that I would be patient with him. The biggest issue is that is that the NFL, the, the toughest part about quarterback play is that in the NFL, they give him a lot of chances early on, and the quarterback just might not be a great fit in that organization with what the organization is asking him to do. And if it doesn't work out, then he gets a label, and that label follows him around you know we'd like to say that sam arnold's gotten plenty of chances but he had a label he still had a label following him around carson Wentz still has a label following him around and i think that um now i would argue that guys like Wentz and, and darnold just weren't that good and we've seen examples of that um but we're not you know next year what you would look for Wentz is a good example because he looked absolutely tragic when having to drop back um and then the eagles realize that maybe if we put him in pistol and spread that he'll actually be, be be better because he won't have to his feet won't be as awful and he can make throws just off of one and two step drops and anything more than a three-step drop really got him into trouble and we started to see you know real production come from that but at a certain point there it's limiting to say we're only going to put you in pistol and spread it's limiting to say that we're only going to do a certain number of drops because defenses can kind of they know what's coming they don't you know when you can have a very drop game um defenses aren't as predictable at the front you know in terms of their fronts in terms of timing blitzes in terms of being able to drop back and just knock the ball down because they know it's a three-step drop rhythm or a two-step drop rhythm um so I think with Young, the key was, are they going to revamp this offense dramatically to try and um, try and minimize weaknesses? And how much are they going to do that? And how limiting is that? You know, it's one thing like with Tua Tungavailoa, you know, as a player who didn't start strong, I guess, but probably not in the lower end. Um, they were able to fashion an offense where he gets rid of the ball quickly because that's what he does well. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, and then with Goff's case, I would look at Goff and I would argue because he was in such a bad situation that some of this also, the, here's the, the whole parts of the black box is that I look at Sean McVay and if you're if you're him in an organization and you're brought on and your star running back says we're in a high school offense, I'm known to be an offensive mind that's why you brought me in and jeff fisher was the defensive-minded head coach who's had a strong cat track record but a simplistic offense and they and they're the one that brought in um golf well i'm automatically going to look at this the way a lot of coaches do because this is how the culture's been which is i'm going to bring my guys in and anybody who came in before they're on notice of whether they're even good or not and while we invested i was probably told that i've got to make this work with golf and that, you know, if the optics were that he didn't even, you know, he didn't really do great knowing the playbook and, and was, 
and was going to be the third team guy after training camp, um, that's a problem. Well, he probably came into this thinking golf's no good. So I'm going to treat golf like he's no good, but I'm going to make it work. So I'm going to, you know, be the puppeteer and micromanage him. And to, and I think the proof of the pudding is, is that when golf didn't work, when they let golf go, you know, McVeigh kind of scapegoated golf and said, well, you know, he, you know, and all, a lot of commentators talked about how poorly he was against the blitz and things like that. But then when he went to the Lions, the Lions had nothing to gain by um, by just throwing everything at golf right away. Um, but they really had nothing to lose either. They looked at it as like, okay, we traded away Stafford. We got golf. We got to see if he can be the guy. We're a bad team already. So let's throw everything at him that we expect a quarterback to do and not baby him like McVeigh might have or micromanage him like McVeigh had. And they said, you know, we threw more, we threw a lot at him just thinking sink or swim because we'll draft another quarterback if you don't work out. And we were pleasantly surprised that he did everything that we threw at him and he did it well, which kind of mirrored my scouting report on him in ways that didn't make sense with what the Rams were saying. But I think that's what happens organizationally. His management can come in. They hear about from their boss what they their, their assessment of the situation is. And sometimes if they're especially a young manager like McVeigh, who's good schematically, but who knows how good he is at managing people. From what I hear, he can be a bit of, I'm the smartest guy in the room and I want everybody to know it. Um, and, you know, and, and I've heard even recently some players talk about that. Yeah, he's, you know, he's fine, but there's moments where you feel like he's, he's, um, he, he feels like he needs to show everybody that he's smarter than everybody else in the room. Um, and I've also heard, you know, from quarterback coaches who do development with quarterbacks away from the game, um, you know, because that's where most of them get coached up on the fundamentals and the things to shore up. And they'll sit there and say, yeah, these West Coast offensive coaches tend to be um, so sticklers for their system that they would rather have a player who's not as good do everything they want them to do in the system than pick the player who has strong physical and conceptual talents that can veer outside their system. Um, and they tend to view players more as um, like components in a video game and they have the control. Like that's how quarterbacks complain, have com called back to quarterback coaches that they hire to do work with them and they complain about some of these West Coast guys. So when so I'm giving you a lot of narrative. Obviously it's not predictable, um, but that's the thing is when you look at case by case, you know, for me, what I constructed in a guy like Jared Goff is he wound up in a situation where he was just cast as the bad employee who was just hopeless and I'm going to mold him and, and I'm going to be like Pygmalion. Like, you know, it's like that kind of thing where I'm going to be the guru. And, and then when you have an opportunity to get somebody who doesn't quite need that, or at least, you know, he doesn't need it because he's a veteran who's going to like talk back at you. Like Matthew Stafford will say, shut up, Sean. Like this is, that you know i've been in the league for 10 years i've been around the league longer than you've been like legally allowed to drive you, you know can you you know we should do this 
Goff's not going to give that pushback in year two. And so he's kind of in an unfair situation. Whereas when he went to Detroit, they treated him like a man and he played like a man and he's playing like a man. And I think that that's the complicated part of this black box that, you know, you can piece together and still not be acting. Everything I'm saying could be absolutely wrong. But at the same time, disparately, there's there's clues that people in the industry or in the league give that kind of point in those directions that say sometimes it's more than just whether the quarterback is good or bad. It's just whether or not the coach thinks he's good or bad and how many chances they give them and what type of chances they give them. Johnny Unitas had a quote that um, you, you haven't arrived as a quarterback in the NFL until you can tell your coach to go to hell. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, and it's, and it's perfect. I mean, look at, look at Tom Brady and Josh McDaniels, Josh, you know, we've talked about, I, I, I wrote about the Ted Sundquist story. I've talked about a lot about how he cursed basically how, um, McDaniels cursed out Jay Cutler on the very introductory phone call with him, Sunquist, and the agent. Uh, and it was supposed to be like, a, hey, how you doing? I'm excited to work with you, da-da-da-da-da. And, and, and McDaniels literally just goes on like a minutes-long diatribe talking about how awful his game was and how he was a shitty quarterback. And and Goff was, uh, just came off a Pro Bowl in year two. And the entire organization, other than that, was still there before McDaniels came. All knew this was a long-term development plan. And they and that he still was not a finished product. Even Cutler knew this. To the point that he turned and looked at his coach. And turned and looked at his agent and Ted Sundquist and said, Get me out of here. I'm not playing here anymore. Trade me. And, they, and, and you look at that and how he launched into a young quarterback thinking that's he wanted to do like the old school Vince Lombardi thing um probably on steroids you know because Lombardi got talked to too by the Giants veterans when he and Tom Landry both coordinators and they all gravitated toward Landry and Lombardi was trying to prove he was the smartest guy in the room and always like doing things where he's pointing out errors and being a hard ass until he got visited in a hotel room and got his ass kicked. No, I mean, he didn't. He got chewed out by the players who were saying, like, look, we know you're smart. We know that you know football. Calm down. Just, like, chill out and try not to prove so much. And if you do that, people will respect you, you know, a little bit more. And he took their advice, you know. But I don't think anyone's done that with McDaniels. And you look at McDaniels with young quarterbacks or with quarterbacks he didn't want, you know, I mean, to sit there and take Derek Carr, who, you know, if you're a coach and you come in and you're like, okay, I have one of the top wide receivers in football and he came to specifically play with Derek Carr. How do I make this work? That's probably the first thing I would look at. Not, let me bring in a, a quarterback who's not that good who was supported by a great team around him because he played for my Patriots and I'm going to shuttle the other guy out of town. That's really going to work from a, from a standpoint of like team building. That makes no sense whatsoever, you know? And, and at the same time, he bullies people unless he's got a player who comes back and over the top at him, like bullies are, you know, if you bully people, 
generally you get you, the only way to fix that is to bully them back until they shut up you know and and i think that tom brady was one of those guys that just stood up to the bully and said you know you'd see the sideline arguments he's just literally laying into you know mcdaniels at any at any moment and i think that there are a lot of coaches and um quarterback because there are a lot of coaches who come in and if they're young they try to establish who they are and they can ruin quarterbacks pretty easily that way because the quarterback feels like they have to listen to this guy they can't push back because then they're going to be labeled a cancer they're going to be labeled all sorts of things because they've seen it in football culture before i mean i'll give an example one last example that doesn't have to do with high school um, um, pro football but it's it trickles down this type of behavior trickles down even to the high school ranks i had someone contact me last year who um they're there they had a family member um or they had a friend there was a family member who contacted me and they had a friend whose son was a quarterback who was getting coached by cam newton's coach for a few years he was an all district quarterback in in the atlanta area um, but he ran more than he he was more of a runner combination dual threat and he he played well his junior year but then the coach came in and decided that he wanted to have a pocket quarterback and he was talking up this sophomore that they got and the soft and they brought in the sophomore and according to at least this point of view from the you know from the from the quarterback's family was that um they didn't really have a competition. It was kind of a faux competition. And lo and behold, the sophomore won the competition and and became the starter. But in game one, um, he was so bad in the first half and they were losing so bad that the coach put in their their kid who was the, the, the dual threat player and he went on to be all district and took them to state. And that was and he got along with everybody well that he wasn't a problem the dad was a little bit too much of a um one of those you know parent you know athlete parents that should probably have kept his mouth shut and stayed away um, but that was not the kid um but the coach resented all this the coach resented that that the player he championed didn't play well and that the and that he couldn't give him another chance because the other quarterback looked good and kept him off recruiting lists. So the recruiters came and he was like, you know, introducing himself and they go, well, we can't talk to you. You're not on the list. Talk to your coach. So he asked the coach about it and the coach said, yeah, I'm not putting you on any lists. Um, you're not, you know, you're not a leader. You're not this, you're not that. And just like said all these awful things about him. And the kid's like a good student. Everyone got along, got along well with him. So they asked me for advice and I contacted one of the recruiters that I know in a division one school and i just said give me some advice on what i can give them that's actionable because it's like late it's already like march well past the recruiting period help them you know get an opportunity and they gave me some great actionable advice to give his family and within two weeks he had a scholarship at a school um you know and and he has a chance to develop from there but the point being is that these coaches can be so they they get hired for being known for something that their ego they get so ego attached and they micromanage certain things that when things don't go the way they wanted to they can end up taking it out on players and players know this 
and they and they have to walk a fine line. And I think that you know a guy like Goff probably had to walk a fine line because they made him look like he was howdy doody, you, you know. And and if he complained, then they were just going to say he's a malcontent. Look what Sean McVay did, taking them to a Super Bowl. But although Sean McVay got outclassed and outcoached in that game in dramatic fashion. Um, and had to learn more, you know. So I like McVeigh, but I pick on him a lot because these are flaws that are apparent with a lot of coaches, and I think it does impact the quarterback position more than any other. Yeah, I, we've talked about before. Joey Harrington wrote a piece um, after he retired um, titled, um, Despite What You Think I Consider My Career a Success, or something to that um, nature. Um, and he was talking about the same thing, like his rookie year, you know, he was really struggling and he went in and he talked to um, Steve Mariucci, who was the head coach at the time. And like not a lot of people know this, but Joey Harrington actually has two of the best, two of the 10 best seasons in NFL history in terms of sack rate. He did not take any sacks. And the reason why was because anytime any defender got within three feet of him, he chucked it out of bounds. That's not good for an offense. You know, you need yeah. a quarterback to take some risks at some point. Otherwise, you're never going to go anywhere but he felt like he didn't have permission to make mistakes. So he, he felt like that was, you know, Mariucci came from San Francisco and he had this, it was a very efficient, methodical offense. And that was their mindset that we're just going to, you know, we're going to take six yards at a time, eight yards at a time. We're going to play mistake-free football. We're going to march down the field um, and we're going to score our points. And that works, you know, that, that was a great fit for Jeff Garcia um, and some of the other guys they've had there. Um, although Garcia, I thought, also played really well in different systems in Tampa. I, I don't want to say, you know, he was a system quarterback or anything. Sure. But um, Harrington just felt like he didn't have that permission. And he went into, like, at the low point of his, his rookie year, he went into the coach's office. And he's like, like, I need you to give me permission to make mistakes. Like, just... I need you to tell me that I can do that. I need you to tell me that it's okay. And Mariucci just blew him up. Yeah, sure, whatever. That, okay, cool, whatever, whatever you need to hear. Um, and didn't take it very seriously. Um, and, and you know, Harrington eventually landed in um, Atlanta and Miami and played significantly better and, and a different brand of football. And he always felt that, like, he could have had a longer career if the Dolphins hadn't signed Dante Culpepper um, but then they had so much invested in Culpepper. And and um, he thought with that kind of development, he could have had a better career. But he was he was okay with how everything turned out. You know, he, yeah. he gave it what he had, and he thought that he was a successful player. Um, and, and, yeah, it's... I mean, look at Robert, Gri look at Robert Griffin. I've right. told the Robert Griffin story where he, where he went into, you know, Mike Shanahan's office and asked to be developed as a pocket player. And Shanahan tells the story in hindsight saying this was ridiculous that Dan Snyder put him up to it and all of these things, but then prompted to, to run these max protect schemes with like two receivers going out on routes. And in the NFL, that doesn't work. You're going to get hammered. You're going to get beaten to shred, beaten up. And, you know, that didn't, that didn't work. You, you know, you hear the story about Jake Plummer getting the best plays taken out of the playbook that were most effective for him the year after his Pro Bowl performance by Shanahan. And then they were able to put Ease Cutler in there because before that, Plummer had the locker room. They, by and far, had the locker room, you know, having taken them to an AFC championship game. Um, so you see where manipulations kind of can happen in these realms. And a lot of it can be about it's my way or the highway. 
And if you're if you're a young player, it, it can be bad. I mean, you know, I mean, and so you know, and Garcia. I'll just add it as a point. I mean, Gruden's offense. I mean, Gruden was a classic West Coast offense too. So I mean, I think that you know he he played in a lot of West Coast systems, but he had success wherever he went as a West Coast player. You know, you look at um, Alex Smith, and while he wasn't a great player um, as a number one overall pick he struggled, you know, for years, you know, and, and they multiple coaches, um, you know, that part of the problem too, you, you know, so it's a, it's a tough road for these guys. That's for sure. But I mean, it kind of bleeds into our organization. You know, I want to hear your, I, I know I cut you off. So like, I want to hear your other, your other thoughts on this, but uh, also it kind of does bleed into the organizational stuff that, that we were going to touch upon too. Yeah. I will say, I know that you're more of a, um, I guess, I don't know what the right word here, more of a nihilist here that like, I think you tend to think more than I do that, that success is a function of like these developments. And I tend to be more of a, you know, despite all of these handicaps, the cream does still tend to rise in the NFL, which is kind of an amazing thing. Um, but mostly it's just because the selective pressures are so intense that, that, unsuited coaches and and systems get weeded out very very quickly and and teams will yeah i mean you talk about alex smith he had like what seven different offensive coordinators in his first seven years which is not a great not a great environment for developing yeah. but at the same time you know you keep turning it over and eventually you're going to find something somewhere that that works and that fits and that um and and eventually he did with harbaugh and then eventually andy reed yeah i'm kind of more um, of a 50 50 i think we approach it as 50 50 it's just that i do see it in both ways because i look at brett Favre and it's like you know jerry glanville's like a plane's gonna charter's gonna have to crash for me to start this guy and having him be a circus sideshow and Favre's getting drunk and saying fuck it i'm not gonna play but then you know he gets to the right environment and even with, you know, people being worry warts, he's just kind of like, don't worry about it. Like, you know, like he, he still maintained the same attitude, you know? So I think environment helps, but it's not, I don't think it's nature versus nurture, but I do definitely think that it can be a blend of both. And some, some get a little better push than others. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I'm pretty heavily on the nature side. Like even with my kids, I always joke that, you know, in the nature versus nurture debate with kids, there's some people who think, that it's predominantly um, nurture and other people who've had a second kid already. Cause once you have two kids, like, you know, these two kids are in the same environment every day. They're coming home yep. to the same house. We're doing the same stuff and they are nothing at all alike. Yep. That's true. But I, 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 I can also make the argument that there's, there's something, there's always something along the way that you figure out with one of those kids that can help them make a difference for them that might not have made a difference for the other like that like yeah. for each of them there was something that they when the things that they remember they go this really mattered to me and this really was important it wasn't the same thing it was something dramatically different and they appreciate and they and then they find it valuable because they go the fact that you took the time to do this or the fact that we went and did that and it was specifically you know this scenario where you know, you could have just gone, fuck it. Well, you know, we'll let nature take its course, you know? So I'm caught, you know, I'm with you. Like you can be in the same household and I know I'm, trust me, my, my kids are all dramatically different, but, but, it, but also how you, how you approach them is it can be dramatically different in isolated spots. 
Yeah, I think the framing I always find compelling is that nurture is necessary but not sufficient. You know, it's like when you plant um, seeds in the soil, yeah. like the, the plant that you're going to get is a function of the seed, provided you have good soil that has plenty of nutrients and you give it enough sunlight and enough water. And if you deprive these plants of water, you know, if they're if they're not getting the optimal amount of water, they're they're not going to grow up and flourish and become these hugely varied plants. If you're not giving them enough sunlight, if you're not meeting their specific needs. So what they what they grow into, um, and I think this applies for kids, I think this applies for quarterbacks too. What they grow into is a function of of nature. It's what they are. Yeah. You know, that Brett Favre was always going to be like it was only capable of being Brett Favre. You could not have turned Brett Favre into Tom Brady. You couldn't have turned him into Peyton Manning. He, that's not within the range of outcomes for him. But in order for him to become the Brett Favre that we know, he needs good soil and he needs the sunlight and he needs the water. Um, and so that's that's the nature versus nurture argument that I always find compelling, that, that who you become is determined by nature. It's just who you are is who you are, um, but you still need nurture and the appropriate care to, to really flourish and to grow into that best possible version of yourself. Well, since I don't have any kids in the household, I'll just say my dog is a weed that grew out between the cracks of the sidewalk. Um, I think that that's, that's, that's where I would go. But, but seriously, when we, uh, you know, what do you want to touch upon about, you know, organization building, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think that there's an interesting juxtaposition, um, and I kind of got started on this talking about Stroud and Young. Um, I was reminded at the end of the year last year um, when the Texans were 1-13, and 13, um, I think it was. Uh, yeah, 1-13. and 13. And they won two of their final three games, including the last game of the season. They had, they scored a potential game-tying touchdown, and then rather than kick the extra point to go to overtime, Lovey Smith, who knew at the time he was a lame duck head coach, everybody knew he was not going to be coming back for another season, um, which is a whole different topic. But he he decided, you know, no, we're going to go for the win. We're going to go for the two-point conversion to just win this in regulation. Um, and the players loved it. Uh, the other coaches loved it. Um, the fans loved it. He got the two-point conversion. They won the game. The cost of that was that knocked them from the number one draft pick to the number two draft pick where they had to, quote-unquote, settle for C.J. Stroud instead of, you know, getting Bryce Young. Um, and I, you know, I've been, I was thinking that about that after C.J. Stroud's 470-yard, five-touchdown performance that looking at studies, um, the odds that a given NFL player will have a better career than the guy who's picked next at his position, it's about 52 to 53%. It's, it's a weighted coin flip. It's better to be picking the guy first than the guy second but just the size of that effect is is much 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 smaller than people would intuitively think and and teams overrate the right to choose and it's kind of a heretical position for me because the analytics play is that like get that number one pick um you know that number one pick is just so much more valuable than the number two pick that it's just not worth it at all to try to go for the win in that situation as an organization um, obviously, Lovey's incentives and the players' incentives are different than the organization's incentives, but but the analytics guys were losing their mind that, that this is terrible, Houston just cost themselves so much value. And in theory, yes, Houston could have gotten the number one pick um, 
traded back to number two, picked up a bunch of extra value in the process, and still wound up with C.J. Stroud. That was something that possibly could have happened. Would it have happened? Probably not. Everything I'm hearing says that the Texans preferred Young to Stroud. Um, so that, you know, it was very lucky for them that they tried to win. But I think this is a position where I kind of diverge from the more analytically minded. Um, and I think it's actually, I, I think it's actually kind of okay from the Houston Texans organizational standpoint that Lovey Smith went for the win there. Um, because I think that, that culture is such an important part of team building too. And it kind of gets neglected because you can't quantify it. You can't measure, like you can't point to wins and be like, these wins are because of culture. But I don't think it's a surprise that every Pittsburgh Steelers head coach in the last like 900 years has been tremendously successful because the Steelers have an amazing culture. And and that carries down, you know, Lovey Smith might be gone. Many of the players from that game are gone, but culture is not just the players and the coaches, it's ownership. Um, it's even the fans. I think, I don't think the Pitt, Pittsburgh Steelers fans, I don't think would ever accept their team losing on purpose to get a higher draft pick. Like that would just be anathema to them that they would, they would never stand for that because Pittsburgh has this culture and they have this pride and, and they're, you know, it's a very blue collar. The, the team matches the, the city so well um, and takes great pride in that association with the city. And they're, no, we're not going to lay down even if it's a lost season, which they haven't had very many of those, but even if it's a lost season, we're going to be kicking and clawing and biting kneecaps until the very end of the year, trying to claw out whatever other wins. And if we drop down five spots in the draft, then we drop down five spots in the draft. And that culture is such an asset that I think has contributed to so much over the years. Um, so yeah, I, I think the standard analytics position is that was an incredibly dumb thing for Houston to do. Um, Notwithstanding that, obviously, it's it's an incentive problem where Levy's incentives are different than the organization's, but that was such an incredibly dumb thing to do. Whereas I'm kind of like, I think it's okay for a team, you know, the cost of falling from number one to number two in the draft is it's it's real, um, especially in if you're going to be trading down, it's very real. Um, if you're going to be standing put and selecting players, it's it's smaller but still still real, um, and and it's it's very easy to prefer the tangible thing that we can quantify to this intangible thing. You know, like what does culture, how much did that build culture? What is, what is that culture ever going to do for the Texans? But I kind of like the idea that, that a team, you know, was still going down fighting and, um, and it worked out, I think phenomenally for them, regardless of how I still feel about Bryce Young going forward. I, I think Stroud is clearly, um, on the better career track at this point. Um, so it's nice to see it work out. And, and, and I must also note that like a lot of bad teams can try to win and still lose. So there's always the potential there to try your hardest and still get the number one. And then you get the best of both worlds. Um, but yeah, I, I know that I'm kind of an outlier within the more um, number centric side on this debate. Um, I, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but I'd be curious <laughs> your thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because I mean, I get the idea of, you know, how the number one pick makes a difference. But at the same time, if you're going to run a team, if you're going to be over those two sides of the equation and you have to use them as information to factor in, at the end of the day, you kind of as a leader, you kind of have to say, listen, um, I understand that you, I understand that 
you want us to get the number one overall pick and there's a clear advantage to that versus the number two pick. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, our goal is to win football games. That's our number one goal. And there are players who are going to be on our team in the future who need to see that that's our goal, who are going to, we want to give them a chance to develop. If we give up and we tank in certain ways and we're teaching or we're asking them to do things that are not really about that type of effort that they've been trained to give for years and years and years before they became pros, um, they may not want to play here. They may not eventually, or they're in danger. They're endangering themselves by not playing their best. Because when you're playing passively out on a field where players are moving it, you know, eight, you know, 15 to 21 miles per hour, um, and playing with the amount of force that they do, you can get hurt if you're not giving your all-out effort, if you're not playing sharp. Because if you're having to think about what not to do or how to do it, that can be a problem. Or if you're getting players, putting players out there who are not prepared in mass, then you possibly hurt somebody else who is really good. What happens if you say, you know what? It doesn't matter. We can just put our worst quarterback out there or our worst running back out there. And but we'll we'll keep our good linemen in there. So okay, we're gonna run a trap play, and the running back runs up the leg of your all pro tackle, tears his Achilles. Well, that could happen, you know, in any given moment. What if it happens out of gross incompetence? You know, those are the types of things you don't want to have happen. So, I, you know, as a leader or I'm someone who would be managing, I would imagine that that person who's managing the analytical view as well as the head coach is go, look, it's your job to win games and it's your job to figure out with the resources we have, what are the best choices for us to make? And I think that you sometimes have to keep it simple that way. And when you look at, and, and when you look at building a culture, I mean, I love that you brought up biting ankles because that, you know, Dan Campbell got so much shit from everybody in the media, every people I respect who, you know, but who want to be culture commentators, you know, brought up Dan Campbell and how ridiculous what he said was and how he's just this old school, you know, bro who who's just basically doesn't know anything, not very smart, who's just old school football, rah-rah effort type of player who's going to coach now. And then, you know, now we're hearing the stories of the other dimension of Dan Campbell that factored in. And I remember, and it's funny because I heard that from people like, I mean, you know, I've heard that from people like, I think, you know, a lot of people in the crowd, I can't remember anybody specifically, so I don't want to, there's a couple that come to mind, but if I name them and I'm wrong, I feel bad. So I'm not going to mention them specifically, but I remember like my buddy, Eric Stoner, who is a high school football coach now, and who's, you know, more comes from that angle as I do, you know, watching film and, and studying players. I remember we texted that first press conference and, and he asked me, he goes, what did you think about this? And I loved it. I, but I come from a Midwest, you know, blue collar town, support blue collar town football, respect the Steelers, love the Browns. I mean, they were, that's the kind of mentality. So I, you know, I'm going to love that because I know what he, that's my language is we're going to try hard. We're not going to give up. We're going to build, we're going to try and build a football team that can 
not be like one of these wimpy do um, dome teams that fail when they get out on grass. And when you take a look at like, you take a look at that offensive line and, you know, they look like they can win outdoors if they need to. Like that's a team that looks like it's built for that kind of thing. And, you know, they've been throwing the ball well, but you know, when arms get tired, you know, at the end of the season and everybody's banged up, there's going to be a lot of defenses trying not to make business decisions facing David Montgomery and Jameer Gibbs. And most importantly, that offensive line that's in front of them. And because it could be, hell, it could be Craig Reynolds and Zonovan Knight, and I still think they would probably do okay, um, you know, with that line. So, you know, building that culture... And and you can see it because when even when they were losing, the 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 margin for loss that the Lions had, you could see that that culture was that that culture was taking. That they right, were, it was a very resilient team. Yeah, it's a very resilient team, and now it's turning the corner. You, you know, and I think that you you have to understand that those things mattered. It's like the Seahawks; they built a culture. That even though, and then when it started to fall apart, you can see when you saw the cracks and started to fall apart, it just, it went everywhere. But like for a time, that team was a resilient team. I mean, the that game against Green Bay with Russell Wilson and in the fourth quarter of them coming back the way they did, that deep, what that defense was able to do, that defense never thought it could be out of a game. And it, and they, and, you know, I know people who are schematic who say that the Seattle Seahawks defense set back like the forefront of schematic um, advancements for several years in the NFL because it was a simplistic defense in many ways. But they were resilient in what they did. It wasn't just that Green Bay game. I mean, when they were down huge to Cam Newton and Carolina, they came back, roaring back in that game and made it close. You know, there are a lot of or Atlanta that... in the playoffs, Russell Wilson's um, rookie year. Yeah. So, I mean, you see that all the way through as a thread. The Cleveland Browns or the Buffalo Bills. I mean, the Browns, there are a number, you know, those years way back when, when they lost to Elway, the fact that they got there three years in a row and lost that closely three years in a row, they, they weren't destroyed by that. They had resiliency. You know, they had the resilience to, to be able to make it back and not finger point and wind up in a in an awful situation. I mean, eventually it got to them. But to, to, to have three out of four years, have a four-year period where you got that close and lost on just awful circumstances and still managed to get back, you know, that's, those things have value. And I think that, um, I think that that's something that is, understated because we 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 look at mcdaniels again this week sitting there you know everything was patriots 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 he might as well like have worn a uni a patriots uniform in the las vegas raiders locker room if you hear the story that they told this week of you know where they had a grievance players grievance meeting at josh mcdaniels before he got fired and mcdaniels had antonio pierce basically you know standing up for him and Pierce, Pierce made an argument about teamwork and team culture and what they did as the Giant when he was with the Giants as a linebacker and how that helped them beat the Patriots. And not, not kiddingly, Josh McDaniels actually took offense to that and said, don't ever talk about the Patriots that way. You know, 
I mean, how laughable. How laughable is it that he's been hired three times? What he did in Denver, we talked about earlier. Him just like cutting out on the Jets last minute. Colts, yeah. The Colts, excuse me, the Colts last minute. You know, and then this debacle where he, oh, let me bring, let me bring my, let, let me bring my head of player personnel with the Patriots. Great track record, Patriots, by the way, um, with, you know, adding players, I would say not so, not so much. Um, you know, bring Dave Ziegler in there, get rid of Mike Mayock. Why would you get rid of Mike Mayock after what he was able to do? They got into the playoffs that year, you know. Visaccia, the interim coach, I mean, they didn't give him a chance at all. But, yeah, for for McDaniel to get the job, now I want to bring my own groceries. I want everything my way. So let me bring in Jimmy Garoppolo, Philip Dorsett, Amir Abdullah, Brandon Bolden. Some of these guys might help behind the scenes, like learn his scheme, but they're not helping you out on the field. I mean, sorry, they they just aren't. And you and you did it at the cost of, you you did it at the cost of ruining your culture, you, you know. I mean, and you could see it. There's a sigh of relief. It was ding dong. The witch is dead when he left. You yeah, know? I think uh, Vic Taffer was saying on Twitter that like he had never seen a a more celebratory locker room than the Raiders after McDaniel was fired, which is not really a ringing endorsement of you as a <laughs> no. coach. No, no, it's awful. I mean, this guy does not deserve. I mean. This guy, I mean, like people go off on Arthur Smith. I think Arthur Smith is a good coach who just doesn't want his time wasted by inane questions about fantasy football. And then finally got the got the memo this week that, hey, listen, if you're under you're gonna be under pressure and the PR doesn't look good for you, so at least entertain these questions and and show them show them how smart you are. Don't dismiss them and show them how dumb you are, how dumb they are. You know, and I think he learned, he did that a little bit this week with his explanation of tendencies and things like that. I know some people did still didn't like it. They're not going to like anything he does, but that's a, that's an example of that. I mean, like, I think that, you know, you, you can be a smart player and a good, you know, smart coach and good at a lot of things, but you still have to lead and set an environment that doesn't like make your team look like fools or you make your team look like fools. And I think that, you know, a guy like McDaniels is a perfect example of someone who, you know, who didn't get it, hasn't got it and is never probably going to get it because he's in love with himself and what he does. And there are, you know, there are lots of situations like that. I think Matt Nagy went through that. The culture he tried to build in Chicago was just, you know, his his again his stubbornness about what he was trying to do and and I think that you know for the most part good coaches good coaches understand that it's not just about the scheme it's also about the type of players they get players aren't pixels or little you know components in video games you know that you know you've got to have a marriage and i think that a lot of a lot of these coaches approach their culture as in it's my way or the highway and it doesn't work that way anymore it hasn't worked that way for 40 or 50 years um and i think that you know this way more than ever because there's more diversity in how football's played 
So you've got to be a you've got to figure out the right marriage of mixing and matching with these players. Whereas in Lombardi's time, it was like, how many things schematically were they actually going to do? I mean, in comparison, I don't think nearly as much. Um, so, you know, that's my thoughts on it. It's, yeah. Um, I always caution. And, and so I get, like, the people who push back on me when I say that culture is so important. I always caution that any theory that explains everything explains nothing. <laughs> right. right? Like, that's that's the problem with momentum. You know, if, if a team um, is having a big comeback and they managed to complete it oh they they had the momentum if they're in the middle of a big comeback and um and they don't complete it oh they lost momentum like momentum explains everything that doesn't mean momentum's not real but like if it explains everything and predicts nothing then it explains nothing and i think that culture can be one of those things because like culture explains everything if you look at it like who are the best teams of the last like 20, 30 years? They don't have the same culture, but you, Pete Carroll, Seahawks, you have the Patriot way, Belichick, um, Patriots, the Belichick Patriots. You've got, you know, like Dick Vermeil with the chiefs. Like they have a very radically different culture, but they have a very consistent culture that reflects their head coach. Um, Tony Dungy, you know, he builds a culture. It's a different culture. Herm Edwards, um, like a lot of the successful coaches. And then, and then look at the unsuccessful teams and, and, a lot of the times it's a culture problem. You know, the, the Oakland Raiders um, at the end of Al Davis's life and, and like the 90s Cincinnati Bengals, they did not have a draft capital problem where they're not getting high draft picks. They had a culture problem. And the Bengals hire Marvin Lewis and all of a sudden they're not a laughing stock anymore because all of a sudden they have a culture. And, and the again, Ravens it, have a culture. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Under the Oz Browns have and, not had a culture. San Francisco's a joke, and then they hire Harbaugh, and all of a sudden they have a culture. And it's again a lot of this. There's a huge risk of overfitting. Like we're saying they have a culture because they were successful, but I think even if you gave people like if you if you came up with like a, a double blind way of saying like does this team have culture or not, and you managed to get like people's impressions of what teams had culture or not, and then you correlated that against results, you would find that the teams with a with a consistent coherent culture are more successful than the ones without. And and I know that Lovey Smith is is not the head coach in Houston anymore, but I think a lot of culture too is is going back to the owner and the fans and and what should you expect? You know, why is I'll give you um, a perfect example. I'll yeah, give go you, for okay. it. Okay. Chad Span, who's, you know, done a lot of stuff with me in many many years ago at the rookie scouting portfolio, who's a former NFL running back. He led the NCAA in touchdowns when Cam Newton won the Heisman. Okay. And he got, he, he ended up in camp with the Indianapolis Colts during the year that Peyton Manning ultimately got his surgery and missed the season. And after he didn't make the team cause he got hurt late um, in the preseason. Um, and he wound up in Tampa Bay um, for a part of the year with during Raheem Morris um, and they had a big winning streak where they had beaten New Orleans on the road. Then um, he wound up, he finished his year in Pittsburgh and was there for the off season with Pittsburgh um, before winding up having stints with the Texans and the Jets and then the CFL where he got traded for the number, the top player in the league in a one-to-one -one trade and, and was going to be the starter and then tore his Achilles and basically was done for his career and ended up coaching the likes of like David Bell 
in at high school in Indianapolis at Warren High School. So he's had a varied career. And I bring up all of that because during that rookie year, we talked a lot. And I asked him about what's it like in Indianapolis? And he was like, Peyton Manning runs the show. The culture basically runs through Peyton Manning. He is the coach of that team. He's like a player coach. Literally, I'm sitting there in a room. We watch film together. Because I said, well, give me some examples. He goes, well, first of all, he's not he's not healthy right now, but he's literally spending all this time with the running backs like and talking about exchange points and play action details and all these details that, like, I've never had seen a quarterback go through with anybody. And he's doing this off to the side with us for like every day, pointing out these major details. It was awesome. He goes, then we're in the the film room and we're watching a, watching replays of a preseason game that we had. And everybody's in the room together. They're in like a classroom and the, there's one major screen and everybody's in their position groups, basically watching it with their coaches and they're all kind of commenting on stuff to themselves and then move and then they move on to the next thing and i'm sitting behind um i'm sitting next to my running back coach peyton manning sitting in front of me and um we're watching something and it was a pass that peyton threw to me um and i had broke a route in a certain direction and um, the coach says i want don't do that chad i want you next time to do this and everyone's doing their thing and the play goes on and suddenly Peyton goes um hey guys stop the tape and the room goes silent they stop the tape he said review it to this and he looks at it and he turns around and looks at me and goes do exactly what you did before I see exactly what you were doing that's how you should do it um and I look at my coach because I'm like, you know, Peyton's telling me something, but it's com completely contradicting what my coach said. The coach said, look, if Peyton said do it, do it, you know. So that was his experience with the Colts was that it was like a the culture ran through one predominant player and everyone followed suit in a sense. And they were all about details and being on the same page with him. He said, I went to Tampa and they had just beaten New Orleans. Um, and they were, they had never, they haven't won in, in New Orleans in years. They were all celebrating. The coaching staff was partying with the players. He said it was a madhouse there. He said, I could not wait to get out of town. Like I did not want to be there because the, what I saw, I knew that like there was no discipline. There was no healthy lines of communication. Everything was you know, Raheem Morris was not ready to be a coach. And he didn't say that, but what he was saying pretty much tells you that. Then they, I ended up getting picked up by the Steelers. And he said, and he, and I asked him about that. He goes, it's unbelievable. He goes, it's the best organization I've been to thus far. And, or I've even heard about from other players. He goes, when I got there, every player, veterans, longtime veterans, coaches, um, people from, you know, he goes, you know, up in the front office, they all introduced themselves to me. They all shook my hand. They all asked me questions about myself. They all explained certain things to me. And if I needed help or with certain things, resources of where to go, he said, you know, I, I'm listening to, you know, um, I don't remember the linebacker from Texas who's on TV now, but 
He's Acho, Emmanuel Acho, talk about how when you're a late round player and you go to a team, um, new team, if you ask for help with resources, like say, where do I get a massage therapist? Because this was the context he was talking about with the whole Deshaun Watson thing. But he said, they look at you like, why are you asking me something? You're not a high level player. You're making trouble for me. Like I've got more work to do because of you. You're not going to last very long here. It's like that's the tone and tenor of a lot of organizations. He said that was the way it was like for him when he arrived from the Browns to the Eagles, you know, and that the Eagles were like that at one point. He was talking about this on Fox. So, in contrast, here's Chad, who was even a lesser draft capital player than Acho was, and he said, "I'm in. I'm at the practice squad, and I'm getting pointers from veterans, like starters." And they're telling me on things what I need to work on and how to do it and what to do to develop. He goes, it was the, and then I asked him later on after he'd been with the other organizations. And he said, oh yeah, the Steelers were by far, by far the class, the best organization I'd been a part of. I would have run through a, like brick walls to stay with that, that organization because they were serious about football. Everybody was serious about wanting to be a team and how to teach. They all wanted to teach. They all wanted to help you. And I, I've heard from guys like Russ Landy, who, you know, I talked about Tyson Williams once on a show because I liked Tyson Williams and he had a good training camp with the Ravens. And then I, you know, and then when he had that one great um, half against the Raiders in the second half, he looked literally scared holding on the ball, like watching him. He was, he went from carrying the ball like most running backs do with a level of confidence and swagger that you wish maybe it was a little tighter. And he didn't even fumble in that game. To the second half, he was carrying it like high and tight and putting his hands over it. And he wasn't even moving with the level of um, decisiveness. He was tentative and scared. And I never understood what happened. And I was describing this to Russ Landy, the former scout. And he goes, I can't tell you this happened for sure, but there's a lot of gamesmanship with teams. And if the culture isn't strong all the time, and even if it is, sometimes what can happen with younger players is that if you've got older veterans who come in, Latavius Murray, you know, Devonta Freeman, um, you know, players like that, who know they're not going to be there very long if they don't get, because of the veteran minimums that they, they're afforded, they're not going to be very long if a young player continues to play well. They can get in a player's ear, you know, at halftime. And just like coworkers sabotaging coworkers, they can come in and go, Hey, Tyson, man, you look great in this half. You're doing awesome. But man, let me give you some advice. You better hold on to that ball. You better hold, you better carry that ball. You better protect it like that's your career. Because if you don't, um, that, You've, you haven't been here very long. They'll get rid of you in a heartbeat. So, you know, even even if it sacrifices some production, you know, hold on to that ball, you know. And that's what he was describing. He said, I've seen that type of stuff play out where young guys get sabotaged by veteran players. So even, even good cultures can have a little bit of that sometimes. Like in the Ravens case, they, they were missing Gus Edwards and J.K. Dobbins. If those two guys were in the room, and even though they're younger, those veterans would have never been there who were like, I'm just trying to hold on to every inch of my career to get some extra dough. And might not have, that might not have happened, you know, um, might not have been. And I'm sure that if it did happen um, and a running back coach heard that, they probably would have reamed the, 
those vets for saying that stuff. Um, but that's, you know, these are things that, like you said, when it comes to the black box, you can't, can't predict it, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I get back to, you know, I lived in Texas for 10 years and Texas has the best brisket in America. Um, why is that? Is it because, uh, Texas has the best beef in America now? I mean, you know, everybody's buying from the same farmers. Everybody has the same beef, but a lot of it is that, um, you know, the people in Texas have the highest expectations, right? Like you can, you can make a pretty solid brisket in New York city and you're going to make a ton of money. Everybody's going to be like, Oh, this is great brisket. And you make a pretty solid brisket in Texas and people will be like, is that it? Yep. I mean, that that's what you've got and you're out of business within six months. The expectations there are so much higher. Um, and, and you, you kind of need those expectations to succeed. So, yeah, I, I think in everything, you know, uh, anybody who's worked two jobs can tell you the importance of workplace culture um just night and day differences between between jobs even if you can't you can't quantify it you can't say that like oh yes this was culture that was culture whatever but it's just so i mean it permeates basically everything we do humans are at our core a social creature like we that's this is what we do is we create these social groupings and whether those groupings succeed or fail largely comes down to like, what kind of cohesion can we, can we achieve? Um, so yeah, I, I get yeah. that. It's very woo, you yeah. know, it's very hand wavy, very, but I do honestly believe, and, and I don't know what actionable advice can come from it, but I do honestly believe that culture might be the most important factor in sports. Um, you know, you look at McDaniels, you look at Steve Kerr recently gave an interview, or I think it's an older interview, but it recently got resurfaced where he was talking about when he started, he's a coach for the Golden State Warriors, won a bunch of championships with the Bulls, won a bunch of championships with the Warriors. And he's like, when I started coaching, I went and embedded with the Seahawks and I was talking to Pete Carroll and Pete Carroll's like, uh, so what kind of team are you going to run? And he's like, uh, what do you mean? You mean like, what kind of offense are we going to run? What kind of defense are we going to run? And Pete Carroll's like, no, that stuff doesn't matter. Like, that's just not important. I mean, like, what what is your culture going to be? Like, what are your values? I, I can tell you what my values are. My values are not your values. Um, you know, I had my first stint in the NFL, went really poor, and then I wound up in San Francisco um, for a couple of years with Bill Walsh. And like, every chance I got, I sat down with Bill Walsh. And Bill Walsh used to say the same thing, that like, you know, the X's and O's, they don't matter. Like what, what are your values and how are you going to make those values permeate every single corner of the organization? And he talks about at Golden State, one of their values is joy. And he thinks everything they do, like how can we bring joy into this organization so that everybody who comes here knows that like this is an organization that, that believes and prioritizes joy. How can we make our practices more joyful? How can we make our games more joyful, our rotations more joyful? Um, and, and, you know, somebody else like Bill Belichick, I doubt one of his core values is joy. Yeah. Um, but he has his core values. And, and um, Dick Vermeil, I bet you one of his core values was joy. That, that would not shock me in the slightest, or maybe he wouldn't have put it that way. But I just think it's so important. I, it, yeah, I mean, look at, yeah, it is. And I, I'll give you, I mean, listen, this was a long time ago. Feels like it was a lifetime ago for me. But when I ran a when I ran a team of in a in a call center environment, I worked in call centers, and um, we had a certain we had a an ISP provider 
that um, we were contracted to basically retain their customers. They would call in to try and cancel their service. We would try and give them incentives to stay either by solving a problem that they had or solving a problem and giving them an opportunity, another opportunity at no cost to, to use the service. Again, this was in the, in the mid nineties to, you know, mid to late nineties, I'll put it that way for over about a five year period that I was involved in around this. And the complicating factor was, is that I was competing with the internal team of the, of the um, ISP provider that had their own internal call center to handle all this. But we had the advantage of sales skills and understanding to how to, you know, to deliver. What they had the advantage of was resources. They could, they could train people for 120 hours before they put them on the phone. I could train them for eight. Um, and what ended up, and these, they had full-time employees. Most of mine were college students or underemployed people in the Athens, Georgia area. Um, and one of the things that happened was that we had a lot of success. We had so much success that the people who were judging what was going on in that company literally came to me and said, you won. Your quality was your quality of work was so much better than, than our internal group on so much less training and, and your production, maybe not quite as good, but it was in the realm with the quality being so much better that we, we realized that we need to make you a permanent branch within our company. You're still obviously going to be a part of what we do of what you do with your company, but I want you to, you know, I was also the client contact and operations um, manager for, for this. And so I bring all this up because the, the difference in what happened was culture. And you're absolutely right. And my culture, what I realized is I wanted a culture that I knew I needed to hire people who were, um, who could focus, that they could, that they were detail oriented and that they weren't looking to be highly social in, in, you know, in terms of what they did relative to other college students that I had. Um, like they were, you know, that they weren't looking, they, they weren't bored easily, you know? And so I had a very specific pool of people that I was trying to hire and I had success with that so that we could train and, you know, we did a lot of things strategically that were helpful to get us on par with the quality of work to exceed them with less hours. But a big part of the culture was in, in the past rooms like that, people wanted high energy. They wanted to kind of get people talking and, and they wanted to interact with the people like the management and the floor supervisors would interact with the, with the phone people and keep their spirits up because it's hard to, to be on the phones to do that. And you do a lot of motivation. And I did a lot of that, like up on a sales board and telemarketing before I ended up in customer service where you'd stand up there and just run your mouth and keep the energy going and keep it high and keep people energetic when they're talking. Cause when you speak energetically, you sound more confident. People tend to, you know, the theory is that people tend to respond a little bit better on the few that are actually going to listen to you talk. So that's what they came in from. So my rooms were like this. I had a director 
who I worked with who came from that same arena as me. So when he came up, one day I met, I let, I wasn't at work and my staff was there and I came back the next day and my staff came to me and they go, we want to fucking kill your, your boss. I'm like, what's going on? He said, he, he tanked our day. I'm like, how'd he tank our day? He's like, he's like, he came up here and was just trying to change everything around to like, he was back and working at what he used to do with his culture. And like he tried to do it in one day and it was freaking everybody out and everybody was distracted and it was, he was trying to make this high energy thing and it felt like just this kinetic rattled thing. So I said, I'll talk to him. Don't worry about it. So I come downstairs and um, I'm young and kind of stupid at this point. So I'm mad at him. So I come in there and just get confrontational with him, but I knew him well. So I knew I could do it in a way, but I was, I was angry. And he goes, and after we kind of talked it out, he said, it's just that your, your room, the culture, it just felt like this still lake. And I said, yeah. And you want to take like a big boulder and throw it right in the middle of the lake, didn't you? And he started laughing and he's like, yeah, because I, I, I felt like it needed, I said, have my, have our numbers been anything other than stellar? Have we grown this from like, you know, 80 hours to 2,500 labor hours, you know, since I've been doing this? No. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, what, why are you going to come in and try and change the culture in an eight hour shift when it works? Keep the placid lake. This needs a placid lake. It doesn't need what you want it. And I think that that's what happens with these coaches is they get hired to do something or a GM gets hired to do something, what they're known for. And they think they have to impose just scheme as opposed to figure out what's the culture that I want to present and it's got to be pervasive and it's going to take some time and it's got to be in line with everybody's got to be in line with it. Cause if you know, and I, and that's, that was something I learned very learned in my twenties, you know, doing this in a weird situation, you know? And I think a lot of coaches yeah. too, like they're used to being the smartest guy in the room and, and they think that they can just impose culture by diktat. Yeah. Like you just say, this is our culture now. And everybody's like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, I worked at a pizza place where the guy was saying all the time, we have a customer focused culture, you know, like customer is the most important thing. We are going to give outstanding customer service every single time. That's our, that's our North star. That's the most important thing to us. And yet he would come in and question every week, like, why did you give away so many like customer refunds last week? Well, because they weren't happy with the product. And you told me that, that like, this is the number one thing. And he's like, okay, well, our numbers are a little bad. So maybe try and scale back the, you know, scale back the refunds. Let's get, let's be a little bit less generous going forward. Like you can't, you can't fake culture. You yeah. can't say that like, it's Dan Campbell again. You can't come in and be like, we're a tough football team, right? Like you, it's no. gotta be, everything you do has to go towards building that culture. And I think someone like Josh McDaniels saw, um, it's like a cargo cult, like during, during World War II, um, when America was staging on these islands in the Pacific, um, there were like some native tribes there that hadn't really seen any technology. And they watched these servicemen setting up runways and they set up the runway and they set up the control tower and they wave their flags and then the planes would come in and land and bring supplies. And then after World War II, 
the servicemen left and these tribes were like well we want the planes to come back with with supplies so they built runways and they built like fake towers and they stood on these runways with flags and they're waving them and they're you know it's a simulacrum of what they saw they're they're repeating everything they saw thinking that the planes are going to come back with supplies like it's like it's like a rain dance where you're just magically going to summon the plane because they didn't really have the, the technical understanding of, of everything else that was going on. They just had this superficial view of, of what it looked like. Um, and those were called cargo cults. And, and I feel like Josh McDaniels has a cargo cult culture where he had a front row seat to one of the most famous cultures in NFL history, but he didn't really have an understanding of how that was built. And so he, he thought, he's like, I'm just going to like, I'm going to put up these totems you know, like in New England, we had these things in these places, and I'm just going to pantomime what we did there, and the culture is magically going to come. It's going to land on these runways that I built for it. Yep. And, and like, you can't. You can't fake it. You can't. And you can't use somebody else's culture either. You know, no. if, I, if I ran a team, the culture I ran would have to be very different from yours if I wanted to be successful. It's hard. It's a hard problem. Um, I do think, as over the years, I've, I've come to place more more and more weight over time on the importance of this um, and so I try to look at like new coaching hires on in in terms of something like do they look like someone who's going to create a culture um, you know like Mike McDaniel it is a weird dude like he's a very different dude but like he's building a culture and that's awesome yeah. and um, you know I was I was very worried for Miami when they fired Brian Flores because Flores seemed like a guy who was building a culture and and um, the owner reportedly said you know I want you to tank I want you to like violate league rules and tamper with Tom Brady to get him like obviously culture is not a big thing to the owner of the Miami Dolphins from my impression but I think he lucked into a coach that will do the thing that he didn't think was important for him um, and he's kind of gonna he's kind of gonna like luck into success there uh, yeah I, I anymore I just feel like I can't overrate the importance of culture it's it's not and and that's a dangerous position to take because then all of a sudden beliefs start becoming unfalsifiable um but i don't think it's necessarily wrong either yeah and it's just something that we're gonna unfortunately we have to see the proof in the pudding when it comes to how culture is going to play out someone's saying they're going to establish a strong culture or reporters saying they're going to establish a strong culture we won't know until we until we see how the team plays out like you knew after year one dan campbell was had put a culture in that like it was showing up whether it was going to bear fruit long you know early enough for him to maintain his job different story it looks like that's starting to happen but um but listen you know this is a great show we certainly you know we are appreciating the fact that you guys you know listen to rsp film and theory you can find Adam's work once again at Football Guys at Adam Harstead on Twitter. Find me at Matt Waldman on Twitter and at Football Guys and MattWaldmanRSP.com. Thanks a lot. Have a good night.